Welcome to the Fashion Law Network podcast series. My name is Kasia Zabroska-Trabin. I'm a patent attorney and fashion enthusiast based in Los Angeles, California. Join me as I break down legal cases, discuss recent fashion news, and demystify patent law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Fashion Law Network podcast series. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a great episode for you guys. It's a topic that I have been monitoring closely over the past quarter, the slowdown of high fashion luxury sales. So on this episode, I will begin with a rundown of all the research I've done on the recent luxury sales decline amongst many high fashion luxury fashion houses with a focus on the largest conglomerate of luxury fashion in the world, LVMH. And then during the second half of the episode, I will provide my legal analysis on the three recent lawsuits that Gucci filed last week. These are big ones and they're making big waves in the fashion news recently. So the big players in the luxury space are all reporting almost all a slowdown of sales, including LVMH, Caring, and Richemont. Now these conglomerates own a vast majority of the major high fashion houses such as Dior, Gucci, Balenciaga, Cartier. I could go on and on, there's so many of them. I can't say I'm overly shocked at this slowdown. Most luxury fashion houses saw a major surge in sales during the pandemic, some to unprecedented levels, which kind of makes sense. People were home during the pandemic, couldn't travel or have many fun experiences. There was no going to restaurants, at least here in Los Angeles. We were on lockdown for probably one of the longest times um, in the country. And people perhaps had a little more disposable income than they're used to due to the fact that they couldn't really go anywhere. For example, Cartier had a 30% increase in sales during the last three months of 2021 compared to the last quarter of 2020. So that's pretty major. So while everyone was stuck at home, they engaged in what some media outlets called, quote, revenge spending, where you're home, you have nothing to do, so you might as well shop online. I know that was the case with me. I still have so many clothes that I'm wearing to my office that I wore during the pandemic with a fantasy of being in an office while everything was shut down. The Rolls-Royce CEO had an interesting quote about this in the Financial Times. He said, quite a lot of people witness people in their community dying of COVID and that makes them think life can be short and you better live than postpone it to a later date. So that of course has helped the Rolls-Royce sales. And department stores have been experiencing a similar decrease in sales. A podcast favorite, Neiman Marcus, just one day ago, according to DallasMorningNews.com, said that demand is down and there's pressure to discount. Also, that Neiman stated that luxury consumers are increasingly cautious heading into the holiday shopping season. Neiman's sales declined 8% in its first fiscal quarter, which ended November 28, 2023. And back in the summer, I remember reading that Neiman's was laden with lots of excess inventory. It probably didn't help when last winter, according to the New Post, the CEO of Neiman's was blasted by employees of his, quote, snobbish pivot to wealthy clients, which some sales associates feared would alienate shoppers. 
These results came as Saks Fifth Avenue sold real estate that helped them raise $340 million to help pay Saks' various vendors, according to the Business of Fashion. There's also been a lot of articles about how what is called the aspirational consumers are putting a lot of new purchases on hold. So who is this aspirational consumers that all these articles are referencing to? This is kind of a strange term, in my opinion, that's been used in the luxury market to describe a less financially secure customer. They state that they typically earn less than $100,000 a year, and this consumer aspires to luxury brands. So these so-called aspirational consumers have accounted for a huge portion of luxury sales. A lot of the small leather goods that fashion houses come up with are aimed at exactly these consumers. So now that these, quote, aspirational consumers have held back spending, this could mean big trouble for the luxury fashion houses. LVMH was one of the largest beneficiaries of these aspirational consumers during the pandemic era. So looks like LVMH is going to have to get creative on how to get these consumers back with rising inflation rates. I don't know how that easy that's going to be. And Forbes.com had a great article about this, which I will link to the episode notes in the description box for this episode if anyone would like to read it. They stated that the founder of the luxury strategy firm Equit, E-Q-U-I-T-E, predicts that post-pandemic, up to 50% of luxury brands may not survive. So we're now seeing a shift going from conspicuous consumption to a more meaningful, conscientious consumption. And now these are my own comments. So now that we see the pendulum swinging the other way, where people are traveling again, and it seems that consumers are valuing time and experiences more than goods, I guess the main question now is, what is the real meaning of luxury? To be honest, for me, lately it's been more about having time with my family than being on that hamster wheel of constantly buying things. And along with the recent uptick in crime in Los Angeles, It's kind of made me nervous wearing some of my more flashier items, and I have in fact sold or given away a lot of my more monogrammy kind of flashy bags and shoes. Sometimes I feel like it makes me more stressed out owning something really expensive and not using it and just seeing it sitting in my closet is just too stressful for me. The change in the economy may also have had something to do with the recent news of the seizure of $1 billion of counterfeit goods in New York City. Yes, that's $1 billion and not $1 million, which I had to reread two times. This is what the federal prosecutors say is the largest ever seizure of counterfeit goods in United States history. The perpetrators allegedly use a storage facility in Manhattan to conduct their counterfeit ring operation. And according to ABC.com, the shelves in this storage facility were brimming with purses, wallets, accessories. Two men, aged 38 and 48, were placed under arrest and charged with trafficking counterfeit goods, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. 
there were over 219,100 items seized. And the pictures of the storage facility where they ran the operation is just crazy that I saw. It's filled with all these designer-looking bags. There's monogram Louis Vuitton, Burberry monograms. There were even items hanging from the pipes. So they really used every single square inch of that storage space to store these counterfeit items. And if you want to learn more about the underbelly of counterfeit products, check out my previous episode titled The Dark Side of Luxury Counterfeiting. I believe it was in season five. So I've been particularly interested in the recent changes happening at LVMH, which, as I mentioned before, is the world's largest luxury conglomerate. The owner of LVMH is 74-year-old Bernard Arnault. He is the second wealthiest person in the world. LVMH stands for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, and they own a vast array of both designer fashion luxury brands and high-end alcohol companies. One of their most recent acquisitions was in 2017 when they acquired Christian Dior, the fashion house, in a $13.1 billion deal. Prior to that, Group Arnault, which is a private holding company controlled by Bernard Arnault, was the only declared major shareholder for Christian Dior. And for a more in-depth look at the previous Dior ownership structure, please check out my episode all about Dior. I feel like now that I have so many of these podcast episodes, almost every topic I talk about circles back to an episode that I've done previously. I think I have almost 60 episodes at this point. So LVMH is headquartered in Paris, France. And it's also a premium partner and sponsor of the Paris Olympic Games of 2024. According to CNBC.com, LVMH shares fell to a 2023 low as growth slowed, pulling the luxury sector down. Analysts say the huge U.S. and Chinese markets are concerns for investors in luxury. And LVMH sales soared during the pandemic, just like a lot of other luxury companies, and they lifted the company at that time to record financial results. But the disappointing Chinese reopening after COVID and the current pullback in the U.S. have dented their sales and that high track record. So LVMH was Europe's most valuable company by market capitalization, and they recently lost that status to, guess what? the Danish pharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk. They make the drug Ozempic and Wigovi. And I'm sure most people have heard of these ubiquitous drugs. Ozempic, generally known as a semi-glutide, was originally made for use in adults with type 2 diabetes. It's a weekly injection that helps lower blood sugar by helping the pancreas produce more insulin. And the drug also helps with weight loss by slowing down how fast food travels through your digestive tract. Here in the US, we hear about these drugs constantly. Seems like almost every celebrity is on them recently and just losing like tons of weight. Some of them look almost unrecognizable. I saw a photo of Sharon Osbourne the other day. I think it was in the New York Times and she literally was like one third her size that she used to be. So 
And she's quite vocal about using Ozempic. Of course, we don't know what the long-term side effects are yet. So as anything, I'm not providing any kind of health advice here, just reporting on this company. Um, anyway, so that may be for another episode. They also have a really interesting patent portfolio. But anyway, back to fashion. So LVMH was all over the news the other day when it was announced that the oldest son of the owner, one of five siblings, stepped down as CEO of one of the companies that LVMH owns, Berluti. And this is surely going to trigger some questions over the succession of the world's biggest luxury group. The history of LVMH is also really interesting. I'm going to provide a brief rundown of it before we get into the rest episode. So let's go over the history of how the LVMH conglomerate came to be. It all begins with Louis Vuitton all the way back in 1821 when Mr. Vuitton was born in France. In 1853, Louis Vuitton started his own label and several years later, he developed the flat top kind of rectangular trunk, which Louis Vuitton is known for. It was an immediate hit And the previous trunks that people used before in those days were round. And the problem was you couldn't really stack them very well. So Louis Vuitton's invention of this novel rectangular trunk was a major improvement. And it really catapulted him to major uh, notoriety at that time. So then by 1885, the company opened its first store in London on Oxford Street. And Louis Vuitton started seeing imitations of his products by other retailers. And so in 1888, he created the Damier canvas pattern, which is that checkerboard of light brown and dark brown, which has the logo that reads Marqué El Louis Vuitton Déposé, which translates into Louis Vuitton registered trademark. And then in 1892, Mr. Louis Vuitton died, and the company passed to his son, George Vuitton. George Vuitton then expanded the company into a worldwide corporation. And in 1896, the company launched the signature monogram canvas and got worldwide patents on it. So since this podcast, I try to tie in intellectual property elements like trademarks and patents here, Louis Vuitton was really ahead of its time when back in the late 1800s, they were already having a logo that read registered trademark. That's kind of important for Louis Vuitton here. Then in 1913, the Louis Vuitton building opened on the Champs-Élysées and it was the largest travel goods store in the world at that time. Louis Vuitton continued growing, making its signature Louis Vuitton monogram and adding many handbags, wallets, and accessories throughout the years. Then in 1987, we saw the creation of LVMH when Louis Vuitton merged with Moet and Hennessy. So first, let's just briefly talk about the merger between Moet and Hennessy. So these two companies merged before Louis Vuitton came into the picture in 1987. So Moet and Chandon is one of the world's largest champagne producers, and the company also has a very rich history. It began being called Moet AC, meaning Moet and Co. Company, and it was established by wine trader Claude Monet in 1743. 
and he started selling his wines from the Champagne region of France to Paris. And it's reported that King Louis the 15th was very fond of sparkling wine. And so this kind of coincided with the increased demand and popularity of champagne, especially in France at that time. So then in 1971, Moet merged with Hennessy and Company. Hennessy and Co. was founded in 1765 by Richard Hennessy, and it's headquartered in Cognac, France. It's reported that the company sells about 50 million bottles a year worldwide, making it the largest cognac producer. Now, cognac is a type of brandy, um, and Hennessy supplies more than 40% of the world's cognac. So obviously a major, major player in the spirits industry. And Hennessy is really embraced in the world of music. And this is really evident in multiple song lyrics that use Hennessy. In particular, Snoop Dogg has featured Hennessy very prominently in a lot of his songs, like this one, titled Hennessy and Buddha. Here's just a little excerpt. I pour a tall glass of Hennessy. Do you want to have a sip with me? Or would you rather try and trip with me? Put your cups on the table and your hands in the air and touch your rim to the side. That's only if you were playing. Okay, that was a major detour. So let's get back on track. So the merger between Moet Chandon and Hennessy really allowed this new company to grow internationally. And then in 1987, when they further merged with LV, they made the conglomerate LVMH. And currently, LVMH has various um, distribution sectors like the fashion group, wines and spirits, perfumes and cosmetics, watches and jewelry, selective distribution, and something they call other activities. They own lots of different companies, over 70 of them. And I won't go into every single one, but here are some of the most iconic brands owned by LVMH. We have Christian Dior, Veuve Clicquot, Celine, Fendi, Givenchy, Marc Jacobs, Bulgari Jewelry, Sephora, and two department stores in France, La Samaritaine and Le Bon Marché. So now that we know the interesting history of the family-run LVMH, we see how this news of Arnaud's eldest son leaving Boluti will have ripples. Also considering his other children are still very much involved in the LVMH business, with Bernard's other son, Alexandre Arnaud, 31, who's in charge of product and communications at Tiffany & Co. Another brother, Frederick, age 29, is chief executive officer of the watch brand Tag Heuer. Jean Arnaud, 25, very young, <laughs> is in charge of developing Louis Vuitton's watch category. And his daughter, eldest daughter, Delphine Arnaud, became chairman or chairwoman and CEO of fashion label Dior Couture in February. According to the Wall Street Journal, Bernard Arnault reportedly meets for lunch once a month with his five children to discuss strategy at his sprawling business empire. Arnault, the 74-year-old CEO, um, they say headquartered in Paris, goes for a 90-minute meal during which he asks his kids for their opinions on how best to run 
his company. Now, I'm sure one topic they discuss is the caring luxury conglomerate. Caring is also one of the top luxury titans in the world, coming in second, just behind LVMH. It's a French-based multinational corporation specializing in luxury goods. They own brands like Gucci, Balenciaga, Bottega Veneta, Saint Laurent, Creed, Alexander McQueen. So similarly to LVMH, Caring has reportedly seen a decline of 13% sales growth, according to Forbes.com. Sales were down in the last quarter, and Forbes.com published an article titled Trouble in the House of Gucci, Caring Struggles to Revive the Brand's Sparkle. In my opinion, this may also have something to do with the fact that their genius creative director before Alessandro Michel, who left the Gucci company the other year, um, took some of that sparkle with him. And as written in Forbes.com, Caring Deputy CEO Jean-Marc Duplay reflected on Gucci saying the changes in expression and attitude reflected in the introduction in September of newly installed creative director Sabato de Sarno. First collection will, quote, re-establish Gucci's edge in sparkle. Gucci has been in the legal news lately, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, as they filed multiple lawsuits, um, counterfeit lawsuits against Lord & Taylor, Sam's Club, and Century 21. So I pulled up all three of these complaints filed by Gucci. Each one was filed on November 21st, 2023, and all three are somewhat similar. So I'm just going to pick the one that I'm most familiar with to go into depth in on this episode, the Gucci versus Century 21 first. So for anyone who may not be familiar with the store Century 21, it used to be a chain of these discount department stores, which were headquartered in New York City. They had 13 locations, um, but then during the pandemic, Century 21 um, ended up filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. After operating for 60 years, they shut down 13 of their stores in um, states like New York, New Jersey, Florida. I remember when I used to spend some time in New York City during my college days, it was one of my favorite stores to go to. And I still remember some of the amazing deals I got there. I was really into Dolce Gabbana at that time. And I got this really cool red lace dress for like $200. I think I still have it somewhere. So I was sad to hear that they ended up closing all their stores. But the good news is that the family of Century 21 founder repurchased a brand. And they reopened their flagship location um, next to the World Trade Center. So anyway, this complaint involves a Century 21 store. So in pulling up this complaint, it's 24 pages. Gucci brings claims for counterfeiting, trademark infringement, unfair competition, false designation of origin um, under the Lanham Act and also similar uh, claims under the New York general business law uh, sections. So then as is typical in these type of complaints, Gucci's attorney First lays down the groundwork for the Gucci company with a bit of history, how famous they are, how long they've been around for, founded in 1921 in Florence, Italy, and all the various trademarks they own for their logos. They talk about that red and green striped combination design they have, um, their monogram pattern. Uh, Then we get onto the next page, we get into the crux of the complaint. 
So here the complaint alleges that upon information and belief, defendants have manufactured, advertised, offered for sale, distributed and or exported handbags, wallets, and belts bearing marks that are identical to or highly similar to the Gucci marks. These bags and accessories were not manufactured, authorized, or approved by Gucci, and defendants are not authorized retailers of Gucci's products. Now, this next part in the complaint gets really interesting as it alleges that earlier this year, so 2023, Gucci's agent purchased several handbags, wallets, and a belt bearing the Gucci marks from the defendant's store located at 22 Cortland Street, New York, New York. They purchased one black handbag, which was referred to as the Marmont Small Matelas, and it had a list price of $1,799.99. One brown handbag, which they're referring to as the Ophidia GG Small Shoulder Bag, listed price of $1,399. And then they bought one white and another brown handbag, the Horsebit 1955 list price of $2,199, and several wallets and a belt, each of which had a listed price from $279 to $1,399. And then they show some photographs of these alleged counterfeit products that the Gucci's agents purchased um, in the complaint. So in these photographs, um, the first, that Marmont bag is the one that a lot of people have. It's that kind of like quilted, black um, Gucci bag and this is interesting because I haven't heard too much about a fashion house getting an agent to come in going into these stores and then buying this these bags inspecting them for genuineness um, it makes sense it's a good tactic by these high fashion houses to have actual boots on the ground people to kind of see what's happening and I guess that perhaps they were tipped off by someone or maybe they were aware of some consumer complaints regarding the authenticity of these items. So they secured an agent to go into these stores and check it out. I don't know this for a fact. This is just my own opinion, speculation. So in returning back to the complaint, it goes on to allege that, quote, after purchase, Gucci examined the counterfeit products, confirmed they are non-genuine, and upon information and belief, defendants know and at all relevant times knew that the counterfeit products they were selling through Century 21 store are unlawful imitations of Gucci's bags and accessories, and defendants further copied Gucci's product names for marketing and selling the counterfeit products on shopping tags, labels, and receipts. So then the complaint goes on to allege that in June 2023, Gucci notified Century 21 about the counterfeit products that were offered for sale at the Century 21 store, Century 21 allegedly responded that although it believed the counterfeit products were authentic, they would remove the counterfeit products from the Century 21 store as they investigated it. And upon information and belief, weeks after Century 21 agreed to remove the counterfeit products from its store, Gucci's agents continued to observe some counterfeit products for sale at Century, One, Century 21 store. Then the complaint goes on to list the various causes of action, trademark dilution, um, and then at the end, they're requesting a permanent injunction. And also they're directing that defendants turn over to Gucci for, quote, impound and eventual destruction without compensation to defendants, all materials in their possession or control that contain or refer to the Gucci marks. 
So that's interesting. They want to just completely destroy all of these items and that defendants deliver these items to them for destruction. So then I pulled up the Gucci versus Lord and Taylor complaint filed on the same day. The first 10 pages are almost identical to the one versus Century 21. The only difference comes when they discuss the Lord and Taylor company. Now, personally, I'm not too familiar with this company as I've only ever shopped in one in that New York City, and I have never seen one here in Los Angeles. So this complaint alleges that upon information and belief, Lord and Taylor is an online consumer products retailer selling apparel, shoes, handbags, jewelry, and accessories through the website lordandtaylor.com. And upon information and belief, defendants have manufactured, advertised, offered for sale, sold handbags that are identical or highly similar to the Gucci marks. These bags were not manufactured, authorized, or approved by Gucci, and defendants are not authorized retailers of Gucci products. Then similarly, Gucci had an agent to supposedly purchase some of these alleged Gucci products from Lord & Taylor. As the complaint goes on to state, quote, earlier this year, Gucci's agents purchased several handbags from Lord & Taylor's website bearing the Gucci marks, one red handbag, which they refer to as the, G the GG Marmont Matelas camera bag, list price $1,555 on Lord & Taylor's website, one black handbag that they refer to as the GG Marmont shoulder bag, list price $2,400 on the website, and a white bag, Horsebit 1955 small shoulder bag, list price of $1,800 on the website. They again show photographs of the bags that they supposedly purchased from that website. Also interesting um, is that same time, June 2023, Gucci allegedly notified defendants about the counterfeit products that are offered for sale on their website. Counsel for Lord & Taylor responded by admitting it was aware that it was selling counterfeit products, but then failed to respond further to Gucci's communications. So that's kind of interesting that in their complaint, they write that the attorneys for Lord & Taylor were aware that they were selling counterfeit goods. So it's unknown whether Lord & Taylor pulled the items from the shelves and website or not. Complaint does not discuss that part. And then the prayer for relief part is almost identical to the one in the complaint against Century 21, where they want the permanent injunction, destruction of materials, and so on. So I will definitely be keeping a close eye on the development of these lawsuits, and I'm looking forward to seeing the answer to this complaint from each of these retailers. And I will keep you guys definitely updated on how this progresses. And that concludes episode two of season six of the Fashion Law Network podcast. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned soon for episode three. Have a great day. Bye.